We are Danny and Marcus Delalio, and welcome to Deep Diving Delalios. So welcome to our first episode of Deep Diving with the Delalios, while we figure out how to do this YouTube thing. So let's start from the beginning of 9-11. I want to break this down. This is going to be very triggering. I do want to put this warning in ahead of the episode. Uh, we are going to break down what happened on Flight 11 in this episode. So if you don't want to listen to extremely triggering accounts of 9-11, um, just log off. It's not the, not the place for you. It's not the place it's for not, you. No. It's not. We'll have other episodes that are going to be lighter. But this particular episode and this series that we're going to be doing, if you are not in the right headspace to hear about that, don't watch this. Yeah, That's I would it. say um, the events of 9-11 and honestly how our government reacted to it afterwards are some of the worst crimes against humanity that you have ever heard about um, just across the board. Yeah. Um, and just keep in mind for future reference, um, when I feel like something is completely asinine, which we'll get into the government's response and what the government knew about beforehand. Um, I tend to laugh a lot. I'm not laughing at the victims. I'm not laughing at uh, the, event, any, no. the event. No, I'm laughing at the incompetency of our government and of people um, in the government, not the people that actually got affected by this. So just keep that in mind. I'm a jovial, whimsy little guy. I like to laugh, but it's not about that. Okay. <laughs> it's not. And now we are going to start with a little bit of a lighter subject matter. So a week before September 11th, actor Mark Wahlberg would change his flight from American 11 from Boston to Los Angeles. Instead, he opted to go to Toronto to see a friend's movie. He was spared a horrible fate, we now know. As we know, American Airlines Flight 11 was the first plane to hit the towers. About a decade later, during an interview with Men's Journal, Mark Wahlberg would be quoted saying, If I was on that plane with my kids, it wouldn't have went down like it did. There would have been a lot of blood in that first class cabin. And then me saying, okay, we're going to land somewhere safely. Don't worry. What the fuck? <laughs> How did he think he was going to land the plane, first and foremost? Well, I mean, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> he's been in enough movies. He's done enough training. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> when it comes to landing a plane, there's not going to be... If you are completely inexperienced, there's not going to be a, a, a safe landing. No. It, there, you're going to have some damage and stuff like that. An air traffic controller, dead. yeah, an air traffic controller can talk you through it. The only difference is, is how you react in that situation. Which, judging by Mark's um, past, I don't think that he would have reacted so well. Um, especially, I don't know if you guys have ever been in a fist fight. Um, I have not been in one to the death, uh, but I can imagine it is a lot more uh, traumatic if it's to the death. Uh, talking yourself down off of that situation and trying to um, kind of stabilize yourself. Because even after a fight, I fought Muay Thai for a little bit. I want to get back into it. Um, your hands are, are like this. So, yeah. But he was going land to the, land the flight. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And we know this is not the first controversial or dumbass thing that Mark Wahlberg has said or done in his history. As we've talked about before, his autobiography um, was dedicated to his dick. Um, he's also extremely racist. Like, let's just oh, be real. Yeah, and not um, not like casual racism of like, you know, well, I just don't like him kind of thing, right? Or it's not that I don't like, like him, hate I don't crimes. trust him. It's actual hate crimes. Actual hate crimes he, this man has done in the 80s. The most famous one being where he almost beat a Vietnamese man to death. Yes, and he um, spent only 45 days in jail for that crime. Just by the by. Just, just by the way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we say all this, you know. But in actuality, neither one of us have had one-on-one -on -one time with Optimus Prime. And we haven't <laughs> saved the world with Optimus Prime. So maybe there's something going on that we don't understand. <laughs> this man, I can't even handle it. So, of course, he apologized later in a statement where he said to speculate about such a situation is ridiculous to begin with. And to suggest that I would have done anything differently than the passengers on that plane was irresponsible. I deeply apologize to the families of the victims that my answer came off as insensitive. It was certainly not my intention. I don't know how it could have been any more insensitive. I also don't understand how I, I'm sorry it came off as insensitive it rather than I'm sorry it was insensitive. Yeah. I made a mistake. I said something in the heat of the moment. I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. 
No, it was, I'm going to double down. I'm sorry, you guys are pansies. You're a bunch of candy asses over there, okay? Uh, but I could have landed the plane. But I could have, if I'd been there. Oh, <laughs> uh, So we are going to get into just how ridiculous those statements were. And that it's so crazy that a decade after the attacks, Mark Wahlberg was not only insensitive, but stupid enough to think he could have landed that plane or saved anyone. When you look at the events of American Airlines Flight 11 and what happened that day, no one could have stopped 9-11 from at least beginning to happen, except for maybe our own government. Yeah. Yeah. That thing you showed me this morning, I'm like, I'm still kind of reeling from it. I am so upset at our own government and how it was handled. I mean, I look at true crime all the time and you see when things happen at different police um, it, you know, different areas. So when a crime happens, sometimes it's over different counties of police force and everything. You see the investigation get muddled. And that's kind of what happened with 9-11. The, the consistent incommunication between two departments, the FBI and the CIA, and then the lying from the CIA that we'll get into from the 9-11 commission report, it's astounding. And if they had just communicated better, 9-11 may not have happened. So let's talk about it. So almost two years before 9-11 happened, there was a commission. Um, It's called the Hart-Rudman Commission, but it's also known as the U.S. Commission on National Security. Basically, I don't know if everyone remembers the fear in 1999 going into the millennium of what was going to happen with our computers, with our lives. We were all very afraid to go into the millennium. Yes. I I was not aware of of this. I was too young to know. (laughs) The terror of 2000. Uh, Yeah. So this commission was said to be a comprehensive overview of security requirements for the 21st century. So basically it was to take stock of what we, the American government, had at its like for combative reasons and everything and to see what we needed to go into the future, into this millennium with. So just looking at national security as a whole and what we need to do. Now this commission would issue a warning. Quote, America will become increasingly vulnerable to hostile attacks on our homeland, and our military superiority will not entirely protect us. Americans will likely die on American soil, possibly in large numbers. Now, by late 2001, the senior counterterrorism official, Richard Clark, and the CIA director, George Tennant, who we're going to be talking about an awful lot on here, were, quote, convinced of a major series of attacks was about to come. Now, although they didn't see it as attacks on our homeland at that point in time, they thought these attacks were going to happen over at the embassies, over in Saudi Arabia or Israel possibly. But that's according to the CIA, and we know that the CIA is not to be trusted. Um, George Tennant would literally lie to the 9-11 Commission. And the CIA was also very much aware of two of the would-be hijackers um, living for months in Southern California under their own names. For over a year. They entered the country in 2000, didn't they? January 2000. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So they were in here for over a year. And they knew about it. And the CIA knew about it and did nothing. And did nothing. And they knew they were terrorists. And when the FBI asked about it, they were basically told to stay in their own lane. Like, but I thought, okay, so CIA is supposed to be abroad. FBI is is at home. It's domestic. Yeah, they were literally in their lane looking at a terrorist <laughs> inside of the United States borders. The CIA was like, "Mind your own business. Get out of here." Yeah, exactly. Like, what? That is our business. It's a threat on domestic soil. Like, what? What more do you want from us? What? What is the issue? But that does not put the FBI without fault because. They are certainly within. Well, we found out in 2022, which we'll talk about. We're going to talk about all of this at much greater length at at a different portion in our series on 9-11. But they would later, it would be found lied also in the 9-11 commission. Um, In 2022, just last year, actually, uh, these there were new documents released to the American public. Uh, because of Joe Biden, there was something that he put forward. Anyways, we got 510 new pages about 9-11 and the FBI was proven to be untrustworthy in that as well. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. 10 out of 10 for yeah. our government. Before the attacks, there was also a memo which originated from the FBI's Phoenix field office that suggested the issue of Arab men receiving flight training at flight schools that needed to be looked into. Now you pointed out, you're like, that seems a little yeah, like racially motivated. Looking at it with, with 2023 eyes now. 
Uh, you're, like, you, what the fuck? Yeah, you listen to that and you're like, oh, oh, they just had an issue with with Arab guys, people that look different than them, taking flight classes until you pointed out. So basically, what what the issue was that there was weird things going on at these flight schools. That's why they were reported. So what the flight schools had reported was these men had no interest in learning how to take off in an airplane and no interest in learning how to land the airplane. They only wanted to know how to fly it horizontally. Which also, I mean, if you are going to try to invade a foreign nation and try to pull off something like September the 11th, you would hope that the person that you, you sent in would be a little smarter in their cover of being like, I would really like to learn how to fly a plane and just be very genuinely interested in everything about a plane. No, this guy was like, I am here to do a job. And nothing is going to stop me. <laughs> well, I'm so interested to look into the terrorists at one point in time in our episodes because I learned today, actually, that these men, the different backgrounds, and they're young men, too. Like, that's the different backgrounds that they came from. There was reportedly a 20th hijacker that was stopped at MCO, um, Orlando International Airport. And we're going to talk a bit about him. Um, but he had undiagnosed schizophrenia. So are they, like, what kind of men are they picking for their operation? Do you know what I mean? And obviously, this is a huge operation, and you do need a, a huge level of skill skills to pick where your airplanes are flying out of, the time that they're flying out of, and all of this. But I do wonder how prepared they were and just how blind we were on our end. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're mm. going to deep dive into those men and where they came from, where they where they trained at, where they met, how they recruited these men to take over these planes. But it is wild when you think that we are the biggest national security force. Like we I mean, gosh, our um major tax dollars go to our military. Yeah. So to think we have the most gunpower in the world, supposedly, right? We're the biggest military force in the world, but we were stopped dead in our tracks by nineteen men with box cutters yeah. on nine eleven. And nineteen men. In order to going back to the topic of how are they choosing these men, when it comes to like a suicide mm -hmm. mission, it's more often than not uh, someone who doesn't have any family, uh, someone who is probably not going to be missed too much, um, and someone who is a little off the rails. Uh, these people are not, once again, stable. They're easily manipulated That's into about, doing something. I feel like it's easy, manipulated people. Like, like almost, and, and maybe not even that easily. Maybe we shouldn't put it to that. But I think of it almost like a cult atmosphere. You know, when we yeah. talk about the cults here in the United States and how it's like, how did that person get involved with that? And, and, and it's that's a string of it's, events that lead to it. It's mm -hmm. not just like, okay, well, he's, he's suffering from schizophrenia, so we're going to strap a, a bomb to his chest. That's not how it goes. It's more... It's, more oh, it's gradual. It's, it's over time. It's yeah, it's grooming. grooming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Back to this, sorry. Yeah. According to Richard Clark, none of this aforementioned information about the hijackers, terrorists being on home soil at that point in time was passed off to the White House or to himself. He's the counterterrorism guy, right? Um, but I did find something that contradicted this on page 272 of the 9-11 Commission. So it says, quote, on March 23rd, 2001, in connection with the discussions about possibly reopening Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House, Clark warned National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice that domestic or foreign terrorists might use a truck bomb, their quote-unquote weapon of choice, on Pennsylvania Avenue. That would result, he said, in the destruction of the West Wing and parts of the residence. He also told her that he thought there were terrorist cells within the United States, including Al-Qaeda. So they might not have known fully the names but then again you look in august of 2001 right before the attacks and there were those morning briefings with president bush and condoleezza rice and usually Pre vice president dick cheney along with cia george tennant and there was that meeting about bin La bin laden being so he was gonna attack the united states like they knew he was gearing up to attack us yes <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting because up until that point in time, we hadn't really taken Bin Laden seriously. So when you look into Bin Laden, and we'll do an entire episode on him, but he's basically like his family had made a lot of money in construction. And he was only seen kind of as a uh, financier of uh, Al-Qaeda cells, things like that, not as what he would become, what mm -hmm. we would know him as. Which is strange because we taught him how to do it. <laughs> he was a CIA operative. But 
We'll talk Whatever. about all of this. <laughs> so in May of 2001, there was a walk-in informant to the FBI that claimed bin Laden was planning on launching attacks in London, Boston, and in New York. And in June of 2001, an Arabic television station reported that bin Laden had pleasure with al-Qaeda leaders who were saying that in the next weeks, they will witness important surprises. The, you're you're going to notice about the wording. The wording Some is so of it's weird. pretty funny. There's important surprises, <laughs> and then there's something else coming up, which is just... The wording is... It's quite a way to describe 9-11. Yeah, spectacular. It's an, spectacular. It's an important surprise. I don't know. This I it, it kind of reminds me of like a Family Guy bit or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. So in early July, Richard Clark, the counterterrorism guy, he put a domest- domestic agencies on quote unquote full alert, telling them something really spectacular is about to happen here soon. The report summarized threats from bin Laden and warned of potential attacks from groups, quote, aligned with or sympathetic to Osama bin Laden. He asked the FBI and the State Department to alert the embassies, the police departments, and the Defense Department to go to Threat Condition Delta. And what is Threat Condition Delta, Marcus? I have the definition pulled up here from Army.mil. ThreatCon Delta applies in the immediate area where a terrorist attack has occurred or intelligence has been received that terrorist action against a specific location or person is imminent. Imminent. And when the Army says imminent, they mean like... It's happening, like, right now. Mm-hmm. Like, get your gear on, you're going. But, yeah, and I know that because Army. Yeah. So they knew. They knew something was coming down the pipe. And these threats were getting more and more and more prominent in the upcoming months to September 11th. Now, we're about to talk about a man named Abu Zabadiah. I'm totally probably butchering his name. Um, but he's also known as... Oh, wow. I can't talk today. The Forgotten Prisoner? The Forgotten Prisoner. I'm gotcha. so sorry. <laughs> no, you got fine. it. You're fine. <laughs> um, so he is a Saudi-born Palestinian that the government believes, believes is a loose term, was a senior Al-Qaeda member, uh, possibly the number three of Al-Qaeda at one point in time. Anyways, they captured him shortly after 9-11 in a raid of March of 2002, where he was actually shot several times before being brought in. He was eventually transferred over to Guantanamo Bay, which Guantanamo Bay, I didn't know, was in response to 9-11. Yeah. I did not know this. And it's a prison in Cuba. So President Bush would announce his capture as the first big win in our war on terror. I'm just keeping track of the camera. I don't blame you after what we've had happen the last Dear few audience, days. we have had the worst luck with my camera in particular, so I am going to keep staring at the camera so it knows I'm onto it. <laughs> we know what's going on with yeah. you. No, so Guantanamo Bay is a nightmare. Um, I don't know how it's still open. I do not know how it's still open after looking into it. And I want to have an entire episode on Guantanamo Bay because it is fucked. Yeah. Well, to put it lightly. Oh, I mean, yeah. In all fairness to Obama, he did try to shut it down. Did he? Yeah, he did. He tried a couple times uh, to mm-hmm. shut it down. Sorry, President Obama tried to shut it down a few times. And um, that was met with, well, he doesn't care about national security. So basically, <laughs> after, so when we, we did the war on terror in the aftermath of 9-11, we apparently decided that people can be held without their human rights. We're going to get all in this in Guantanamo Bay. So these people are being held without being charged, which without going to trial, with really no evidence that's needed to support holding them. And they're held indefinitely. Like, we have men in there over 20 years. And this man, Abu, he has been held for over 20 years here. And the stuff that has happened to him, he has mysteriously lost one of his eyes. And it's still unexplained circumstances. I mean, I had to pop this one back in this morning. (laughs) It was rolling around on the ground. (laughs) How do you not know how your prisoner lost their... They know. They know. They know, yeah. Mm -hmm. He has been tortured. He has been waterboarded. He has been entombed in a coffin-sized box for over 266 hours. And he has been beaten against walls. And we probably don't even know the half of what this man has faced. He's been driven to literal insanity. Yeah. And then we were supposed to take his witness account from all of this interrogation and take it and use it against a man named Zacharias Musawi. I'm probably butchering his name. We're going to get it together before we go into these episodes. But Zacharias is one of, I think he is the only terrorist that has been charged 
in relation and had a trial in relation to the 9-11 attacks. They had originally maybe believed that he was a 20th um, hijacker, but there's another man that we're going to get into, that man that I talked about that had been in, and he's also in Guantanamo, this other man um, that had been um, in the MCO airport. Um, and he's also driven to insanity in Guantanamo Bay by our people, by our people. And the, um, the word of a person who has been coerced into giving a testimony is almost, it can't be taken. It's we, inadmissible. We don't allow that. We're, we're not supposed to allow that in our judicial system when you're in the States. However, there's a very famous case, the Reykjavik murders in Iceland. I, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. You're gonna have to um, excuse us for pronunciation. We grew up in rural Canada. Uh, so <laughs> Here we are. you're, you're going to have to uh, excuse us for a little bit. We're going to try to get it together, like she said. Um, but yeah, the Reykjavik murders, I think there were five people um, held without bail, without real charge. Uh, the longest, I think, was 350 days in isolation. And eventually after that, and they hit them a few times, I think, too. After all that, they eventually did confess to the murders, um, even though none of their stories lined up on the murders. Um, and nothing about the body that was found because Iceland only has like what seven homicides, maybe a year. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it's a very, very safe, safe nation. Um, but yeah, no, uh, they all eventually uh, confessed to a crime that they did not do. They honestly, there's no way they could have done it. So back to before, um, Abu was captured and brought to Guantanamo in May of 2001. So right before the spring, before the terrorist attacks, what more the United States could do to stop Abu from launching, quote, a series of major terrorist attacks he thought probably on Israeli targets, but possibly on U.S. facilities. Clark wrote to Rice uh, and her deputy, Stephen Hadley, quote, when these attacks occur, not if, when they occur, as they likely will, we will wonder what more we could have done to stop them. Which is going to ring true when the invention of the TSA and other things start start Holy popping up. Man. And you know, you know, it's interesting to me that our response to 9-11 was to police and control our own people more than it was to worry about outside sources. Mm-hmm. It was to launch the war on terror, and then it was to police our own people. Yes. It's very interesting. And it kind of seems like when you... And- Put on your tinfoil hats, people. It's Marcus's conspiracy corner. Uh, it, it's um, interesting when you listen to all of these people's um, accounts and warnings and everything like that. Only a few months in advance of 9-11, uh, what happened after 9-11, almost immediately after 9-11, where everything kind of imploded upon itself um, and became a... Uh, Honestly, kind of a bit more of a police state with like the Patriot Act and stuff like that. And we're going to get into what was found immediately after 9-11 in a very convenient couple of places that listed out not only who we were about to go to war with, but what their motivations were, who they were, all the identities of the men who hijacked those planes. It basically gave us our Bible of what we were about to do. So on September 10th, 2001, the most prolific terrorist out of this entire event, Mohammed Atta, who was a 33-year-old man at the time, would do one of the most bizarre things I have ever heard of someone doing that would put the entire September 11th attacks in jeopardy. You like, guys are not ready for this if you haven't heard it. You are not ready for this. He almost dismantled his entire... Uh, was he not also the main pilot? He was the main pilot. He yeah. was the only man that could fly American Airlines Flight 11. He was the only man that could fly. Hey guys, it's Danielle editing in the future and we had a ton of technical difficulties when filming this episode, one of which is we're missing an entire clip about the muscle hijackers. So basically on the flights there were muscle hijackers, so those that would storm the cockpit, intimidate the passengers, and then those that could actually pilot the plane. Aboard Flight 11, Mohammed Atta was the only man that could pilot the plane that day. So it is odd to me that he would jeopardize his entire mission the day before because he arrived in Boston on September the 9th and then left Boston on September the 10th to go to Portland with his co-conspirator to only return to Boston on September 11th, jeopardizing his entire mission. But we're about to get into all of that. So let's go, let's go. Okay, so on September 10th, Mohammed Atta would take this huge risk He'd go, he'd pick up Omari from his hotel and take the trip from Boston over to Portland, Maine, of all places, two hours away. Best lobster in the world, baby. In his little rented Nissan Altima. 
Of course it was an Ultima. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Of course it was an Ultima. So it's only a two-hour drive. So you would think maybe you'd wake up early the next morning or something and, and drive the car back or something to, to get your flight in Boston. But instead, he risked the mission even further and caught a flight out of Portland, Maine. But before we talk about what happened the morning of September 11th, let's talk about September 10th. So they get up there and they do tourist shit. Yeah. They do tourist shit. These are supposed to be men. You got to get to L.L. Bean. But it's weird. That's sale. These are men supposed to hate us. They're supposed to hate every aspect of Western culture. They even put it in their letters that we find later. They hate Westerners. Mm -hmm. But they're going to. Okay, so first off, let me let me go through the day with you. Okay. On the way there, they got they went to Exxon and then they went to the Wadsworth Longfellow house. What is that? So this is a main poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. This is his house. And it's now a museum as well that you can tour. And they went to this tourist destination to walk through it. And I guess, like, did they like his poems or something? Yeah. <laughs> Why would they? Yeah. They're like, not supposed to like our culture at all. Why were they Why were they going to this poet's house? It's weird. It's incredibly weird. And it, like, this is stuff that you do months in advance to try to gain like intel of like how you can hurt someone right this is not something you do the day before the night before saying like oh well you know we'll just skip up there skip yeah. up to maine get our lobster and and they didn't even get lobster this is a sad part about it they well here okay so weird so they arrive at their hotel by five forty three, and they spend the night in two and room 233 while in portland they are also seen making atm withdrawals why do they need money when they're on a suicide mission the next day it's weird. That's a good question. They also stopped at a Walmart. I don't know what they bought. I'd be interested to look into what they bought at Walmart. Maybe the box cutters. Maybe. Boom. Mystery we solved. 9-11, <laughs> over. I saved it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Just like Mark. The FBI also reported, quote, two Middle Eastern men were seen in a Pizza Hut parking lot where Ada is apparently known to have eaten that day. Well, we got to talk to these people. Like, we got to talk to the people who were working at that Pizza Hut. If you worked at the Pizza Hut in Portland, Maine. On September the 10th, 2011. Oh, 2001. <laughs> Please contact 2001? us. 2001? Send us an email. We have an email in our contact thing. I really want to talk to you. But also, if you worked there on September the 10th, 2011. <laughs> I don't know. Talk to me. It'd be cool, I guess. This is what's crazy to me. Let's talk about the morning of September 11th. They wake up. They go. They board their flight at Portland, Maine, okay? At 6 a.m. They're cutting it close. They are cutting it close. And they had done these runs. They've done a lot of practice runs, mm. okay, up until this point. These men knew what they were about to do. So I don't understand fully this next section. So we're about to talk about a retired ticket agent named Michael Tooney, um, who was working that day in Portland. He says some weird stuff about his interaction with Ada some racist things as well too so let's talk about this he said that muhammad ada was quite agitated when he found out he had to go through security again once he reached boston so he not only had to go through security in portland you don't remember this we almost missed a flight once in boston because of this because at that point in time of where the terminals were i he do would remember have to, this yes yeah yes. he'd have to go through security again at boston logan so Security once in Portland, and then risking the mission again, he's doing security to transfer terminals, and he only has an hour within these flights to transfer, get to his next flight. It's it's weird. It's really weird. It's really weird. They had so much meticulous planning before this, and he somehow didn't know he had to go through security twice. I'm not sure I buy that. I don't, yeah, no, I don't buy it either. Like, okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so according to Tooney, he says that Ada looks at me and says, quote, I thought this was one step check-in. They told me one step check-in. I looked into the guy's eyes and he just looked angry. I just got an uncomfortable feeling. It just sent chills through you. You see his picture in the paper now. You see more life in that picture than in flesh and blood. I said to myself, if this guy doesn't look like an Arab terrorist, then nothing does. Then I had to give myself a mental slap because in this day and age, it's not nice to see, say things like this. I don't think it's nice to say. <laughs> I don't think it was nice to say it then, I, sir. No, I or think either. it then. How, how old was he? Oh, Michael, I'm not sure. Literally, he's in an, an interview with the main Sunday Telegram and he's saying this stuff. 
I think I think this speaks so many volumes about where our headspace was following the September 11th attack yes. concerning Muslim and Arabic men. Yeah, we were. It just, was a bad time. Just people to from be the a Middle Muslim. East too. Yeah, because the Sikhs were having a lot of hate crimes done on them. It was and, awful. Yeah. So he then told the main Sunday Telegram, "You've checked in a hundred of Arabs, Hindus, and Sikhs, and you've never done that." I felt kind of embarrassed. You should. Uh, ten out of ten, you yeah. should. Because no. if you look at the time, there wasn't really a concern by the American public concerning Arab terrorists at all, or uh, like there wasn't this mm. like concern about these men doing anything like this at the time. A plane being hijacked for a possible suicide mission wasn't even on our radar. No. So back then, hijackings. Okay, so when hijacking started happening was about the 1960s to the 1970s, okay? So during that time, there it was happening so often, it was estimated that a hijacking occurred on average every five minutes globally. Now, these hijackings were for monetary gain, so they'd like take the plane hostage and then get them to land somewhere and try to negotiate with the FBI, uh, like some kind of monetary value. Or a lot of people were trying to go to Cuba during that point in time and get home, because we were not allowed to go to Cuba at that point in time. So this was happening so much that they actually thought about building a fake airport for Cuba in Florida. They did, Havana Airport. So that they this was happening so much, but in those hijackings, rarely anyone was actually injured Mm. and they didn't take over the cockpit like they did in 9-11 so they would just like take the plane hostage so at this point in time in our lives before september 11th happened what the crew was supposed to do during that point in time and what the american public thought as well they were supposed to communicate only with the cockpit they weren't supposed to talk to people on the ground they weren't supposed to it wasn't this huge fear that it's we're our planes and our people in the planes are going to be used as a literal weapon against us that wasn't even a thought process so i find his thoughts on this just indicative of how we as the american society felt after 9 11. yeah especially after an event like this suddenly coming out of the woodwork and saying well you know i i checked in hundreds of you know arabs and sikhs and this that and the other thing but um this one arab gave me chills, gave me chills. and yeah. it's like well did he? You know, yeah. <laughs> or was he just because he looked like a businessman too? Like a lot of people that interacted with these men during that day. There was a there's a man in Dulles we're going to talk about um, for the one that hit the Pentagon. Mm. Um, he talked about checking these men and they were late for their flight as well. Just by we are going to talk about this. It's weird, um, but he just talked about how they they looked like angry businessmen. Like it wasn't something that he was like holy shit, like, yeah. these guys are up to no good, you yeah. know, and he let them through, and that's something that he says he's had to live with. And, if, that... you, and if you guys have never been to an American city, angry businessmen are everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so... Of all shapes and colors. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's, they're absolutely everywhere, so oh, that is, that's literally nothing to worry about if you see an angry businessman. It, you start to get, you start to get scared when you see an angry person who is not a businessman in the middle of New York. That's when you start to worry. <laughs> they take off they land in Boston, Logan Airport, right, with for their connecting flight, American Airlines Flight 11, at 6.45, okay? 11 was scheduled to depart at 7.45. They have a literal hour from hitting the ground in Boston to go through security again and to get over to American Airlines Flight 11. It's weird. Now, these were transcontinental flights on purpose, because the terrorists thought it would have the most jet fuel to spur on the attacks. The jet fuel would do more damage to their targets. So that's why they chose, they were hoping these planes departing from somewhere and getting them at the beginning of their trip would cause the most damage. Okay. ADA was also selected by a computerized pre-screening that was called CAPS at the time in Boston. Now this wouldn't delay his trip at all. It didn't delay him getting on the flight, nothing like that. I don't even know if he knew he was selected for this, but interestingly enough, it would stop his luggage from getting on the flight, his checked luggage. Why the fuck did he have checked luggage? Well, maybe, so the stuff that we'd find in the checked luggage, you would think it would be destroyed. And the stuff, we're going to talk about it at the end of this episode, we'll talk about what was found in his luggage, but it's fucked. Anyways, got to pack my board shorts. I don't, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Heaven. Yeah, what is going on? I guess on? not heaven for them. But yeah. <laughs> what is going on? I don't know. <laughs> we'll talk about that because it's very convenient. What did was all, left in the did, bag? Do you know if they all checked luggage? I think so. Yeah. Maybe maybe they didn't even know they were going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
the very second that they were like in the air. There's a lot of theories as to why Ada went to Portland, but none are none are confirmed. The CIA supposedly doesn't know why he went to Portland, Maine. Um, the FBI supposedly does not know why Muhammad Ada and Omari went to Portland, Maine. There's a lot of theories. Um, some people do suggest that they were gay lovers. I don't believe that at all. Like, there's crazy conspiracies about this. What part of this story? Well, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's the gay love story of the century. The two dudes that ran a plane into the North Tower. What? Yeah, there's also um, rumors maybe they were meeting someone while there. But why did they go to the Wadsworth Longfellow house? Like, it's so weird. It's so weird. And it's not something... Once again, if you're... Like, I don't understand. If you're going to meet with all these people and you're going to do all of this, they're, first off, the meeting thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe they met someone in, so they in did, the house. Maybe. So, hear, hear me out. Maybe they met someone in the house. Okay, and they wanted to go somewhere that would be inconspicuous. This is not something you do the day before the attack. Day before the attacks. We just heard a cat cry. It doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> the day before the attacks. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you usually don't get like a mission briefing or anything like that. If they were going to go somewhere where maybe they they thought that they would be um, assured of what what they were doing was correct, mm-hmm. um, they would have gone to to their holy house. Is where they would have gone because this apparently was jihad so mm-hmm. they would have gone somewhere like that they wouldn't have gone to a poetry house okay they met someone that someone must have been very important who must have known at least several of the details of the mission why did that person not make them drive back to boston and risk missing their flight it's weird that was gonna <laughs> Whatever. I don't understand. Also, <laughs> I will say, Muhammad Atta, in the days before 9-11, when he left, I believe it was Florida he was at, um, he did, supposedly, they believe, he met people in Baltimore on his way up to Boston. So, some of the guys before, like, departing for their, they believe, for um, the plane that would hit the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. But we, we don't know all of these things for sure. There's also the theory, this is the main theory, that Muhammad Atta didn't want all 10 hijackers showing up to Boston Logan at one point in time, like all at once. But that doesn't make any sense to me because they all already had their tickets. Do you know what I mean? Like, so the government, the American government knew they were taking flight lessons. They mm. knew about all of this. They knew that they had terroristic intentions being here on American soil. And they knew all of them had bought these tickets, right? So I would think that that would have been stopped like long before. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't like i i just don't buy it especially since they were in two different terminals Mm. um these planes departing i don't buy that that's why he did that and it's yeah and he he just cut so close like okay best case scenario Mm -hmm. these people are entirely incompetent at their job which if you look at recent events that have happened recent uh shootings and stuff like that all of these people that were shooters um, that killed a lot of people or just killed a few people were on the FBI's r- radar. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, best case scenario, they are completely incompetent at their job, in which case they need to be abolished or completely replaced. Worst case scenario, they are neglecting this information to further an agenda. Conspiracy corner. <laughs> but Conspiracy corner. like, I'm like, like, not even a not even a weather person in the early two thousands was this inconsistent. With what they were doing. So like what. What's going on? So now we're going to get into territory of me not being able to pronounce people's names. It's just how it is. We're going to power through and do our best here. I would apologize. But these are all terrorists that I'm talking about. So here we are. So between 645 in the morning and 740. Muhammad Atta. Omari. Satam al-Sakwami. Wal al-Shari. And Walid al-Shari checked in and boarded American Airlines Flight 11 bound for Los Angeles. At the time, their chosen weapons, those box cutters that we talked about, they were legal for them to bring aboard. There was no TSA. Like, I feel like there's an entire generation of people that don't know how easy it was to get through um, security at the airport during that time. And I will say security we were talking about those hijackings earlier it was seen not only by the airports and by the airlines as a huge uh like problem like they like what do you what do you call it like an inconvenience Mm -hmm. to to the customers yeah but the government as well saw it as an inconvenience so they didn't implement 
the TSA or anything until after 9-11 because they didn't want people buying less tickets. It all is financially centered. So even though those hijackings were happening so often, security was not at the height of their of what they were worried about. It was money. Mm-hmm. So we did not have high security at the airports. Now, American 11 would depart 14 minutes late, taking off at 7.59 with 24,000 gallons of jet fuel, 76 passengers, 11 crew members, and five hijackers on board. From here on out, everything we know is due mostly to the heroism of the two flight attendants on board, Betty Ong and Madeline Amy Sweeney. So Betty Ong was just 45 years old, and she had been an American Airlines flight attendant for 14 years. On September 11th, she woke up early for her flight, kissed her fiancé goodbye, and told him she'd see him on Wednesday. She was the first person to alert authorities on the ground that something was wrong in American airspace. She would stay on the phone with her supervisor until the plane made impact with the towers. Holy cow. I didn't know she stayed on that long. Yeah. Holy cow. Mm-hmm. So you can hear the majority of her phone call online. They they do cut out a portion of it. I thought this was interesting. I was listening to it on the 9-11 Commission hearing, and they cut out a portion of it to, they said, not offend um, family members. So I don't know what was going on in that portion. Um, it's interesting. I will say between this and, and the other flights, and especially United 93, it is interesting to me what our government holds back from the public. And I don't think we'll see it in my lifetime and possibly in your lifetime. But I'm wondering if your kids will end up knowing more about what happened that day, like if they'll release things as more of us die off that live through these events and and no victims of the events do you know what i mean Mm. it's kind of like with the whole like world war ii things that are coming out Mm -hmm. in recent years or such a side note prince philip um did you know his uh will will never be known yes yeah (sighs) freaking weird anyways prince philip's will we won't know it all of us alive right now will not um ever hear what's in his will and we don't know why Except for, except for me, because I'm never going to die. So. <laughs> Anyways, so back to Betty Ong. So her voice, the entire phone call, remained steady, all while, while in a calm, professional manner, she let those on the ground know the horror that they were facing in the sky. Detail, details such as the seat numbers of the hijackers made it easier for the FBI to conclude who the hijackers were, which proved necessary for the future investigation. That's okay, wild. Mark Wahlberg, take a seat because <laughs> yeah. this this woman is able to accurately relay data in a timely manner mm-hmm. while under extreme duress. Extreme duress. Extreme duress. duress. Mm-hmm. That woman, I mean, this woman's a hero. She's amazing. So yeah. preternatural calmness seemed to be natural to Betty. So she actually grew up in San Francisco's Chinatown in the 1980s, which according to an NBC News article I read was rife with gang violence. So according to her brother Harry, one day while she was working her parents' grocery store, a group of gang members actually barged into the, into the shop and demanded that Betty hand over the money. Betty, like a boss, was irritated and told them to leave. Betty's Betty's a boss. Betty's Betty, a boss. Honest, honestly, Betty, legend. Legend. Legendary. Someone drew a gun and pointed it at her, and she stood her ground again and told them to leave, and they did. <laughs> Betty's amazing. Betty. Betty. Oh, my gosh. Now, another amazing woman on the morning of September 11th was Madeline Amy Sweeney. She went by Amy. She was disappointed that she wasn't going to be able to take her then kindergarten age daughter to school to the school bus because she had picked up an extra shift for her sick colleague. She wasn't even supposed to be working that day. She loved being a mother and she usually kept her work schedule light so that she could spend more time with her two children, Anna, who was five at the time, and Jack, who was four. Now, according to these two brave women in the 9-11 Commission, this is what happened on American Airlines Flight 11. American 11 had its final communication with the ground at 8.14 in the morning, shortly after the fastened seatbelt sign had been removed as the attendants prepared for cabin service. So this would lead the government to believe that the hijacking began around this time, as just 16 seconds later, any attempt from the ground to reach Flight 11 was ignored. The hijackers quickly gained control of the plane, but it's not known exactly how they gained control of the plane and were able to enter the cockpit. But by 8.20, Betty Ong had been able to get through by phone to an American Airlines reservation office in Cary, North Carolina. The agent's name was Nydia Gonzalez. I could not imagine being Nydia Gonzalez at a reservation center. Yeah, picking up this this call. Between the bad 
um, the concept's not answering. Somebody stabbed in business class. And um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Yeah. That's ridiculous. But also, speaking on the fact of the how, how were they able to get into the cockpits, um, January of 2002 is when the FAA publicly called for airlines to install reinforced doors that we know today. Um, so before that, they were just basically normal airplane doors. And uh, what I kind of have the mental image of is like a lavatory door for like that kind of thinness. But... So Betty, so Betty would later say on the phone that it seemed like they had jammed their way in. Mm. That was the, so maybe they literally just jammed their way into the door. Nydia relayed her information to the American Airlines Operations Center in Fort Worth, Texas, and they started to speak with a, the manager on duty. His name was Craig Marquis. He was kind of a dick. We don't know who's up there. Well, if they were screwed, they would keep the door closed. And I'm sorry? Would they not mean to cut the... I think the guys are up there. They might have gone their, their way up there or, or something. Nobody can call the cops that we can't even get inside. To be honest, when you listen to the recording, like, he's not... He says, well, if they were shrewd, they'd keep the door closed. Would they not maintain a sterile cockpit? If who? Who was shrewd? So I think he's talking about the pilots and that, but it's like... Would they not keep... The door was probably closed. That's why they had to force their way in. What are you talking about, dude? Yeah, the way he... And he kind of was like shrugging things off. Honestly, it reminded me of... There was a true crime I talked about a while ago where a custody agent went to um, this man's house to give his kids over. The kids ran ahead of her, and he slammed the door shut and locked himself in the house, and he was known to be a dangerous man. That's Jonathan Powell. Jonathan Powell, I think. Joshua Powell. Joshua Powell sounds better. Um, but, yeah, she goes out to her car, calls 911, and the 911 agent is like, well, they're with their dad. So, like, and she's like, and later the house explodes. So, like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I hate when you're talking about emergency situations and managers and 911 agents and people are just not taking things seriously. Yeah. But yeah. People like that should be brought up on charges of malpractice. You would think. IMHO. So at 825, one of the hijackers, we believe it to be Ada, was under the impression we also think that he was only talking to the plane cabin. Because he didn't know how to to um, operate the cockpit radio. To the U.S. government's knowledge, none of them had ever flown an actual airliner b- before. Like, they had never flown a commercial airliner. So they got through to air traffic control instead of the cabin. So the cabin didn't hear this message. Is it a man 11 trying to call? We have some planes that take flight and we'll be okay. We're heading to the airport. No one heard this, just to reiterate, because Mark Wahlberg thought he could have saved the plane, so I want... No one in the cabin heard this. During this time, Amy Sweeney, she had slid into the second row from the back of passenger seat, okay? And she had picked up, remember those airplane phones? I don't know if anyone, Yeah. (laughs) back in the day, we used to have phones in the back of the seat in front of you instead of the TVs, and you'd be able to call down to earth and have a chat. Well, she grabbed this phone, and she called at least five times trying to get through to someone down on the ground. Someone even hung up on her. She said, this is Amy Sweeney. I'm on flight 11. This plane has been hijacked. They disconnected. So she called back and said, listen to me. Listen very carefully. And the voice on the other end was replaced by Michael Woodward. He was an American Airlines manager who had been friends with Amy for over a decade. Can you imagine picking up that phone call? So Michael knows she's not fooling around. He knows Amy, right? Mm -hmm. She says, Michael, my plane has been hijacked. And calmly, she gave him the seat locations of the three three of the hijackers, 9D, 9G, and 10B. She said they were all of Middle Eastern descent, and one spoke English very well. Because of this information, within 20 minutes of the attacks, the airline knew the names the addresses, the phone numbers, the credit card information of three of the five terrorists on 9-11, including its ringleader, Muhammad Atta. Wow. 
Amazing. Here's what the 9-11 Commission report was able to assume happened on the flight because of these two women's calls. It is believed the assault happened, as we said, with cabin service beginning and the two muscle hijackers that had been seated in first class, Wal al-Sharie and Walid al-Sharie, stabbed two of the unarmed flight attendants that were preparing for the service. As this was happening, the commission believes that Ada started to make his way to the cockpit. Okay? But it is then believed that Daniel Lewin, who had served for four years in the Israeli, Israeli military and had an understanding of Arabic, may have understood what those men were saying in first class, and he made an attempt to stop the hijacking. But he was taken out immediately. He was stabbed to death, and he is known as the first casualty of 9-11. He definitely would have known. I've been to, I've been to Israel and Palestine, and everybody can speak English, Arabic, and Hebrew. So he knew crazy that they took him out like you just think if he'd been seated maybe they, he was seated right in front of them they were seated behind him yeah and speaking of being able to hear things on a plane um and back to mark Wahlberg's comment for a second um i don't know if mark Wahlberg has actually ever flown in a commercial flight because you can barely hear the person talking next to you mm-hmm. um and that's not just because your ears are popping and stuff like that it's because it is Plain really loud. Yeah, it's it's loud. It's like white noise all around you. Yeah, very loud white noise all around mm-hmm. you. So even if that cockpit door was open, people probably wouldn't have heard the announcement that was supposed to come to the cabin but actually went to the air traffic. The fact that flight crew and passengers had been killed or injured in an attempt to reach the cockpit told those on the ground that this attack was this hijacking was much different than any other hijacking that had happened so far as we talked about with the history of hijackings. Both Betty and Amy were able to relay to the ground that all of the passengers that were in coach were under the impression that there had actually been a medical emergency in first class. So they did not know that this hijacking was in process. They were not aware of this and that way the ladies were able to keep them all calm. Mm. Amy said that the men had a bomb, and when they asked, when Michael asked her, "How did you? How do you know this?" She said, "Because he showed it to me." Now, passengers on United 93 would also tell their loved ones that the terrorists had bombs. One passenger suspected that the bomb was not real, though, and the FBI found no traces of bomb-like material at any of the plane crash areas, the crash sites. It would definitely have endangered their mission to have brought those illegal substances and things on board the plane so it's not believed that those bombs were real a real db cooper situation that's how he got the stewardess attention another hijacking Mm -hmm. um he said that he had a bomb and he opened up a briefcase and it had a bunch of stuff in it and made it look like a bomb so unlike betty amy's call wasn't recorded but we can read part of the transcript from the notes that Michael Woodward took down that day. So around 8.44, Amy Sweeney informed Michael that the plane had radically changed directions and was flying erratically. Michael asked her to look out the window and tell him what she saw. I see water. I see buildings. We're flying low. We're flying way too low. According to the notes taken by Michael, Amy then took a deep breath and gasped, Oh my God. The phone call abruptly ended. It was 8.46 in the morning. The exact time Flight 11 hit the North Tower of the World Trade Center, killing everyone on board Flight 11 and an unknown amount of people inside the tower and trapped those above the impact. The water Amy had seen was the Hudson River, the buildings, New York City. What Amy and Betty did was above and beyond the training that called them to do. At that point in time, as we said, they were only supposed to talk to the cockpit, not to anyone on the ground. And they are the reason we know as much as we know about Flight 11 because the black box on the plane was never recovered from Mm. that crash site. So... This is how we know what we know about Flight 11. According to the 9-11 Commission report, when American 11 hit the the North Tower in New York, no one in the federal government had been alerted to that hijacked plane. Now, we know. (laughs) I'm telling you. So American Airlines was aware this plane was hijacked. 
and we'll go through what the ground knew. But they knew not just because of Muhammad Atta radioing them on an accident and saying we have some planes, nobody moved. That that told them that there was something off, you know, going on up up in the air. But the flight had rad- erratically changed directions, so they knew they were dealing with a hijacking. And as we learned, they had been trying to get through to the military with no avail, and they finally got through to someone in the military nine minutes before the plane hit the tower. So the military could not have stopped this either. Let me look something up. Okay. So about nine minutes, um, you said, mm-hmm. when the military was was made aware of what was going on, it would have taken five minutes for two F-15s to scramble and get um, just about airborne. That is just, the five minutes is just getting them started and out on the runway. And then here's the thing, too. They did get those up in the air at one point during 9-11. We're going to talk about that in a future episode. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have any of their um, explosive devices on the airplanes that day. Our people would have been a suicide mission if they had gone up. Um, One of the pilots who'd gone up said she had planned to take out the tail. And another one had planned to take out the pilot um, the the front of the plane. Mm-hmm. I can't talk right now. That's fine. Um, but they they were going to be a suicide mission. The only of United ninety three. Yeah. The only thing is, is by the time they got up in the air, United ninety three was already crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. Most government agencies would learn about the crash in New York on television. If you recall, Muhammad Otto's bag never made it on to flight eleven. Inside his bag, they would discover a four page letter detailing almost everything that the government would need to know about the attacks. The identity of all 19 hijackers, as well as information about their plans, their motives, their link to Al-Qaeda, which we were soon to go to war with. How convenient is that? And it's very convenient. This all would assist in the conviction of Zacharias Massawi. What? Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> so the, the guy whose bag wasn't checked, was not, he wasn't the ringleader. He was, Muhammad Atta, his okay. bag. Yep, it was so held his, by caps. So his bag got held by caps. Okay. And a, and a letter was found in it detailing everything. Everything. Even how they almost missed the flight? <laughs> no. Okay, I kind of get it, but at the same time, I don't, because, yes, the ringleader would probably have all of the information. Um, and everything. I'm trying to think about like so when we traveled. It's not just the ringleader. Two identical letters would be found in the possessions of terrorists from two other flights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From that same day. This would all be found by September 28th, by the way. So one of those letters was left in the belongings of Nawaf, um, one of the hijack- hijackers from American Airlines 77, which class crashed into the Pentagon later that day. The final letter was found in the wreckage of United 93 in that field of Pennsylvania in Pennsylvania. So he so Nawaf left it in his vehicle and the other one was just found in the rubble of United 93. Leaving it on the, in a vehicle would make sense. I th- no, I think taking it on the plane would make sense cuz you'd think it would be destroyed. Do you know what I mean? No, I think I mean, I guess even failed, like even stuff like that, that was failed attempts or or missions that didn't go through, we still destroy. Because you wouldn't, I would think you wouldn't want the the United States government to find all of that information. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. But then again, these are the same guys that, well, they're from the same group that bombed the World Trade Center in the 90s. And then the VIN number of the vehicle was found in that bombing. And that's how, and then they returned to get their deposit on the vehicle because they said it was stolen and they were just getting their deposit back and that's how the FBI caught them. So, I mean, I guess. I also find it weird because there's a section of this letter in this manifesto of sorts, but they want to stop the conspiracy of the infidels, but yet they went to that poet's house the day before the attacks. Mm. And and they ate at Pizza Hut, which I don't know if there's anything... Correct me if I'm wrong in the comments. I don't know if there's anything at Pizza Hut that's halal. Oh, right. And that would be again, that would be a mark against them. And it would also be partake it's pizza. You're partaking of cuisine prepared for and by infidels. It's weird. So that all of that makes doesn't make sense to Although, me. Although, so Ada didn't really follow the rules anyway. So he had been known to he told all of his <laughs> what? 
Continue. Continue. Okay, he told everyone not to talk to their family members. You know, all the hijackers, they were not allowed to talk to any of their family members. Yet right before the attacks happened, he had called his father, they think, to say goodbye. So it's he didn't. Weird. Okay. All right. Okay. I don't understand. I get. I also don't understand, like calling someone to tell them goodbye when you're about when you're about to carry out something like that. Do you know what I mean? No. Some something that you believe is going to be a, a mark against the infidels. It's going to be a mark against um, everything that they stand for and all the rest of it. Oh, that's interesting. Your, yeah, your but... life your life doesn't mean anything. The, the only thing that matters is the mission. Why would you, as someone who's about to carry out this mission, in your head, it's a holy mission. Yeah, you're why, going on to bigger and better things at the end of the day. Why yeah. would you be like, I gotta, I gotta tell my loved ones bye. Yeah. Like what? What part of that? Ah. It's weird. Yeah. And it does make me like think on the more conspiratorial side of things. Like, what did the CIA know about 9-11? Like, I do, I wonder that. About as much as, in my opinion, conspiracy corner. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think the CIA knew as much as Winston Churchill knew before Pearl Harbor. Oh, I didn't know this. Winston Churchill knew uh, stuff about Pearl Harbor. Yeah, he knew it was going to happen. He didn't want to intervene because he wanted the United States in the war. Huh. That's my little... Ooh. Government would never do that. Yeah, it's weird that you would say your goodbye is like a... Interesting. Yeah. But maybe maybe he didn't say his goodbyes. We don't know that for sure. That, yeah, he could also just been like, how's the weather? But it also it doesn't make... I don't know. I don't know. And he told everybody else, don't call... Anyways, it doesn't yeah. matter. So... Tangent. Sorry. Yeah. Back to the beginning of our episode. Mark Wahlberg could not have stopped the 9-11 attacks. He would have been in the same boat as Daniel Lewin, if not worse, if he had been on that plane. He might not have even known it was happening if he'd been moved to coach. You wouldn't have known it was happening. Because business class and, and coach, back then especially, I remember this Well, a I mean, lot. he would have been in business class. Mark would have. Yeah. But he would have been moved to the back pretty quickly. You know what I mean? He, like, he would have, they didn't kill all the business class passengers. No, but if he had seen, uh, keep in mind, racially motivated attacks are kind of Mark's thing. <laughs> so if he had seen... Um, what they did to the Israeli, or he saw the Israeli get up and try to do something about it. Um, I think they would have gotten him too. What blo- what blows my mind, and this isn't this isn't a mark against against any of this. I'm just like, I don't know, I like that Israeli guy, insane. Because this was it wasn't as common anymore, but hijackings weren't a necessarily bad thing even up until that point no it wasn't you weren't you, so you like, were probably going to make it out of it alive like you were like 99.9 percent sure you were you'll live through the hijacking and if you guys don't know mark Wahlberg is kind of a specimen of a human being he has really big arms pretty wide neck um he would be the kind of guy if i was going to do anything like that he would be the kind of guy that i would want out first take him out yeah daniel was taken out Mm. i don't want to have to deal with that later on when i'm in a high pressure situation i want that diffused immediately so yeah mark i'm sorry you know this is this is the mark Wahlberg story story hour podcast i know uh but i don't think Don't think so. Don't think. <laughs> um, so I did a video, I did two videos on um, September 11th last year. One of my videos was how Seth MacFarlane had missed, for the creator Family Guy, he had missed American Airlines Flight 11. They literally just closed the door. Um, and he was like, ah, it's no big deal. I'll go, I'll go rebook my flight. I'll sit in the airport bar. And he had a nap and he woke up and he saw the tower on fire. Um, Could you imagine waking I, up from a nap? <laughs> and just being like, oh, I was supposed to be on that. Oh yeah. my gosh. So yeah. then I had a lot of people messaging the conspiracy theories of, well, the Hollywood elite must have known that 9-11 was happening. And that's why Mark changed his flight and why Seth didn't make it on time. Not that Seth was hungover and he he often misses flights because he's hungover. I did want to talk about, there's a few prominent people that died on 9-11. So let's mm. just talk about American Airlines Flight 11. So 
David Angel, the co-creator of Frasier and his wife, um, were on that flight as well. Um, they were flying from their home in Cape Cod to Los Angeles for a table read of the next episode of Frasier, as well as the upcoming Primetime Emmy Awards. Which, by the way, if you haven't watched Frasier, please do. It is a masterpiece. <laughs> I love that show. Angel often took Flight 11. Now, by coincidence, there's an episode that was filmed in 1997 of Frasier, where a stranger who has the wrong number leaves a message on Frasier's voicemail saying that she would soon arrive on, quote, American Airlines Flight 11. Now, it's believed this was an Easter egg in reference to how often Angel took the flight. I also had a lot of people in my comment section discussing what a horrible world this would be without Family Guy, and thank God Seth didn't make it on that flight that day. Spoiler alert! Family Guy would have been around because by that point in time, it had not only aired, but it had been canceled by season three. So you would have had your glorious Family Guy. Um, We just would have missed its stupid revival. But nearly 3,000 other people died that day. So what else have we missed? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So I have another chronically online take to share with you that I heard on Twitter just the other day. Yeah. Twitter, the cesspit of the internet, but I love it. It was on a report about Jeremy Renner. Uh, we are filming oh. this a couple days after uh, he was injured horrendously, um, hips crushed and everything else. If you're watching this, I'm really sorry. That's horrendous. Um, where we grew up in Canada, we know a lot of people who have been seriously hurt by plows and blowers. Um, the rough stuff. Uh, but yeah, somebody replied to that. How are the Avengers going to take on Kang without Hawkeye? They've never been without him. Life is a little bit more important. Hot take. Hot take. <laughs> His recovery is a little more important than, than a franchise of films that Disney's already making bank on. So it's like, wow. Why do people? Why do people say stuff like that? Why, why do would you say stuff like? Why that? would you it's sit so down and be like, well, you know, all these other people died, and life as we know it has been changed globally for mm-hmm. the rest of our lives. Globally. Um, but man. If we hadn't had Family Guy. Family Guy Funny Moments Part 15. A beater. Like, yeah. Well, just a little taste of what we missed out on from this flight. Daniel Lewin, that first casualty of 9-11, he was on the path to becoming the next Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, by the way, this man. I didn't know that. According to those who knew him, he had founded a company named Akame. I might be mispronouncing that, but it's a name that comes from Hawaiian for smart or clever which has since become a multi-billion dollar company active in cybersecurity. His company took off on an unlikely day, March 11th, 1999. That random Thursday, two events literally broke the internet. The opening of the NCAA men's basketball tournament and the trailer for the new Star Wars film, The Phantom Menace, had been streaming. Servers crashed all over the country, but Akama's servers were able to handle the surge and the company took off. Wow. Yeah, he would have done something. Perhaps if he'd been able to get the upper hand that day, if the seat maybe hadn't been 9B, maybe he would have used his military and mathematical mind to fight terrorism. But like thousands of others we lost that day, we will never know. Holy cow. That's rough. So we're at the end of this episode Next week, or not next week, excuse me. We're doing this every other week while I get the hand of editing everything. It also only took us three days to film this. To film this, so. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting it together. We'll get it together. Yeah. Um, No, but remember, we're every other Wednesday. We will be here. We're creating a Patreon right now, so make sure you join us on there because we are doing this all out of our own time and effort and pocket so if you want to be a supporter of the channel make sure you join us on there um but next wednesday we are going to talk about what was known on the ground where president bush was that day and the second plane to hit the tower oh bush silly old guy the silly little man little president silly old guy (laughs) a little goofball (laughs) (laughs) but until then See you later. See you guys later. Thank you so much for watching our first episode. (laughs) It means the world to me. It doesn't mean a lot to her, but it means the world to me. So thank you very much. Bye, guys. See you guys. Bye.